Hey there, all you true crime fans. I'm Amanda. And I'm Corey. And welcome back to Colorado Crime. You know the drill. We're just two best friends who want to chat about all things true crime. This week, we are going to be getting into the life and crimes of Charles Manson. So, without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into this week's joke. This joke was sent in to us by my sister Annie. Woo! Did you hear about the two guys that stole a calendar? What? No. They each got six months. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to remember that one. I'm going to, I will tell my dad that one. He'll like that one a lot. So, uh, before we get too far in today, uh, only one person responded to how you broke your toe. Maybe because our last podcast was just a bunch of rambling about a bunch of nonsense. That is fair. It was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it was fan from Fan Annie. So thanks, Fan Annie, for listening to the whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate you. She said you stubbed it on a doorframe. So you want to tell us your real story? Well, <laughs> I was in prison. <laughs> That's not the real story. <laughs> oh, oh, right. I was killing a fly and the dishwasher was open so I was coming in at like a weird angle and I jumped up and landed on my pointer toe on my left foot and it got all like super super tiny and weird and creepy and like pointed towards my big toe so I ripped off my slipper and my sock and I'm yelling at my husband I'm like honey I broke my toe you gotta pull it and I'm like freaking out and he he jumped right in like and he does not do blood and gore and guts and grossness so I figured he was gonna like leave me. Make you for do the it wolves. yourself. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't hesitate. I was like, "Dang, I'm impressed." So he, like, are you also my bleeding, toe out? So I was. It was. It was pretty raunchy looking. Though. It was gross. I was like, "Ooh," and it was all like crumpled up. But yeah, he pulled it out for me, and I went a couple days later and got X-rays, and I broke it. It is my first. Well, this little second. piggy stayed home. He should have stayed home. Mm -hmm. He was drunk, apparently. <laughs> he has my first, like, actually, second, actually, um, broken bone. I got hit with a sledgehammer in my elbow, and I, like, chipped a piece of my bone off. Oh, yeah. And then I broke my nose when I was five. I got hit with a bucket. Mm. But I didn't go to the doctor because. No, you don't for your nose. Meh. My parents you were just, like, you just girl, don't you're breathe. fine. Pretty much. And I don't now. Fine. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I broke my Thanks, too. mom and dad. Mm -hmm. Along with my foot. Oh. Yeah. And I broke a toe. Then I chipped a bone off my ankle once. Hey, I did that to my elbow. I got hit with a sledgehammer. Yeah, you said. You said that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah. More rambling. You're welcome. You're welcome. You know, <laughs> you wanted to be here for it. All right, friends, let's get into some true crime updates. So, I only have two for you this week. Letitia Stauk was found guilty, which, thank fucking God, um, there is still justice in the world. But hopefully she rests in prison and she's not in some sort of a mental hospital because she is the scum of the earth and that poor little boy did not deserve that. And my second one is kind of an exciting update. 
Um, Joran Vandersloot is accused of the murder of Natalie Holloway when she was on vacation 18 years ago. And he's actually being returned to the U.S. to stand trial for her murder, which I think is awesome. That's crazy. I know. I know. All right. What do you have for us? Oh, so I saw this one on the news yesterday. And to be honest, I laughed only quite a bit. (laughs) So it's funny and terrible at the same time. So a 33-year-old Corey Richens. Um, She was just charged with the murder of her husband, Eric, last year. He suddenly died in March of 2022. The police were called to the Richens' house when they received a call just after 3 a.m. to reports of an unresponsive man. Corey reported that she found her husband dead at the end of the bed. Suspicious. They had been celebrating a home closing for her business. She made him a Moscow mule in the kitchen, brought it to him while he was in the bedroom. He drank it and they went to bed. She, however, went to sleep in the room with one of their children because the child was scared. When she woke up at three, she got up to return to their room and she she stated that she felt Eric and that he was cold. So she called 911. Uh, She also stated to the police that she left her phone charger or her phone plugged into the charger in their bedroom when she went to sleep in the room with her child. However, the cell phone records show that there was movement on the phone and that it was not locked. Uh, they have some text messages, um, between her and like a drug dealer as a whole thing. So they also have evidence that she purchased the fentanyl that he was poisoned with through text messages. They have a statement that Eric made that, um, to one of his friends that he thought his wife was trying to poison him. And the toxicology report shows that Eric died from a lethal fentanyl overdose. It shows that he had nearly five times the lethal dosage. Holy uh, cow. Ar- yeah. She was arrested and charged with murder, possession of GHB, and possession of controlled substance. And this arrest comes just two, man- two months after she published a children's book called Are You With Me? This book is about dealing with the grief after the loss of a, de- a loved one. <gasps> no. Yeah. <laughs> it- it's oh a book about gosh. her dead husband. Who and she how killed. Her kids, yeah, how her kids dealt with the grief of that. Also, why does she have GHB? That's the date rate drug. Who is she date she raping? Bought, I don't know. I think she probably put it in his drink too. Oh, because okay. she had poisoned, she had supposedly, he was sick a couple of months before he passed away. And that's when he told his, his friend that he thought she was trying to poison him. He had gone to the hospital and then he had gotten better. I think that was like her first attempt to see how much she it needed. Would- Oh yeah, my gosh. yeah, yeah, and she was on like today, the Today Show, like promoting her book and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I think if I Bam, suspected jail. Chris of trying to murder me, like I'm like ninety nine point nine percent sure that I'd be like, "Hey, bye." Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna hang around for you to try again, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh my gosh, what a psycho! Yeah, yeah, I think it's more psycho that she that she wrote a book. Yeah. She's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a book about grief. My children are really grieving about the fact that their dad's dead. I the killed fact him, that I murdered whatever. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was an interesting story. It made me laugh a little bit. Ugh. Yeah. Gross. So gross. today... We're going to dig into the famous cult leader, Charles Manson. 
You heard me. I said cult leader. I know that many people think he's a serial killer, but he's not. He is not. a crazy cult leader. So, Charles Mills Manson was born November 12th, 1934. He was born to his 15-year-old mother, Kathleen Mason Bauer Cavender Maddox. She's been married a lot of times. In Cincinnati, Ohio. His biological father was Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr. He was from Kentucky. Charles's mother filed a paternity suit against Colonel Walker in 1937 and won an agreed-upon judgment. Walker had worked in the local mills when he felt like it and had a reputation for being a con artist. He told Kathleen that he had been a colonel in the army, but Colonel was just actually his given name. Oh, <gasps> no. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't a colonel. <laughs> what a wiener. When she told him she was pregnant, he told her he had important army business to attend to and skipped town and never returned. So Charles, unfortunately, never knew his biological father. In August of 1934, right before Manson was born, Kathleen married William Manson, who was a laborer at a dry cleaning business. However, Kathleen liked to drink, and she liked to drink with her brother, Luther. So she would leave Charles with multiple babysitters, a lot of multiple, a lot of babysitters. William and Kathleen, in April of 1937, got a divorce after William alleged gross neglect of duty by Kathleen for always leaving Charles alone with William with babysitters. But after the divorce, Charles retained William's last name. Then on August 1st, 1939, Kathleen and her brother Luther were arrested for assault and robbery. Kathleen was sentenced to five years and Luther was sentenced to 10 years. When that happened, Charles was sent to live with his aunt and uncle in West Virginia. When his mother was paroled in 1942, Charles considered those first few weeks after she was released as the happiest time in his life. When Kathleen was released, they all moved to Charleston, West Virginia, where Charles continued to be truant from school, and his mother spent her time drinking. I mean, she was only 15 when she had him, like, she, her whole childhood was being a mom, so I get it. She was arrested for grand larceny, but she was never formally charged, and they moved to Indianapolis where Kathleen met her second husband, whose last name was Lewis. They met at an AA meeting. Hey, she was they getting help. Yeah, they got married in August of 1943. When Manson was nine, he set his school on fire. Well, you know, if you're not going to go, you might as well light it on fire. All right, you're like, eh, we don't need this building anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, he'd gotten in trouble for truancy and petty theft. There was a lack of foster home placements, so in 1947, when he was just 13, Manson was placed in the Gibbalt School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is a school for male delinquents that was run by Catholic priests. <laughs> Oopsie. <laughs> which, this is not a religious podcast, but we all know. Well, what we all happens know. with Catholic priests? Right? Mm -hmm. Side eye. <laughs> so... Jabolt was a strict school where the punishment for even the smallest infraction including, included beatings with either a wooden paddle or a leather strap. Manson ran away and slept in the woods under bridges and whatever else he could find to shelter him. He eventually ran back home to his mother and spent Christmas of 1947 with his aunt and uncle. 
His mother took him back to Gibbalt, and after 10 months, he ran away to Indianapolis. In 1948, he robbed a grocery store, and this was his first known crime. The robbery, at first, was just so he could get something to eat. But then he found a cigar box with a little over $100 in it, which was a lot of money back then. Yeah, it was. Holy moly. I mean, he rented a room. Right. Well, he took the money and he rented a room in Indianapolis's Skid Row and bought some food. For a short time, Manson worked for Western Union and attempted to live a crime-free lifestyle. But that didn't work out, and he began to supplement his wages doing petty crimes. He was caught, and in 1949, he was sent to Boys Town, which was a juvenile facility in Omaha, Nebraska. Which that alone should have set him straight. Right? I'm just kidding. Nebraska's great. My parents are moving there. My dad lives there now. <laughs> well, he... <laughs> So he had been there all of four days before he and a fellow student named Blackie Nielsen got a gun and stole a car. They then committed two armed robberies on their way to Nielsen's uncle's house in Peoria, Illinois. Nielsen's uncle was a professional thief, and he took the two boys on as apprentices. Mm. However... Manson was arrested two weeks later during a nighttime raid on a store in Peoria. When the police investigated further, he was linked to two additional robberies, and he was sent to the Indiana Boys School, which had the reputation for being a strict reform school. He wasn't a super amazing criminal. He seemed to get caught a lot. Yeah, he did. Hmm. So this school was actually pretty terrible. Uh, Manson endured things that no child should have to deal with. He was raped repeatedly by other students with the encouragement of staff members. He was also beaten. He ran away from that school 18 times. While he was at the school, he invented a self-defense technique that he dubbed, quote, the insane game, end quote. He would screech, grimace, and wave his arms around in an attempt to convince people trying to assault him that he was insane. After a number of failed attempts, he and two other boys escaped the school in February of 1951. The trio went around robbing gas stations and attempting to drive to California in multiple stolen cars. They were arrested in Utah. They actually made it pretty far because they were in Indiana and they drove to Utah. So that's pretty good. That is pretty good. Mm -hmm. So while he was in custody, he was actually given a bunch of aptitude tests, which determined that he couldn't read or write, but he had an IQ of 109, which was above average. So he is a smart criminal. He just wasn't very good at it. <laughs> so his caseworker actually deemed him aggressively antisocial. At the recommendation of his psychiatrist, he was actually transferred to Natural Bridge Honor Camp in October of 1951. This was a minimum security institution. His aunt visited him and actually told the camp that when he got out, she would let him stay at her house and she would help him find work. How nice. That was really nice of her. Yeah. So Manson was up for parole in February of 1952. However, in January of that same year, he was actually caught raping a boy at knife point, which, I mean, he had been raped, so I get Maybe sexual assault. Maybe he just thought that was like yeah. What you did to survive. Right. 
So instead we're not making of, excuses for him no, though. No. Rape is bad, always Rape. and forever mm-hmm. bad. But sexual assault is a learned thing. So, so instead of being released, he was transferred to the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia. While he was in custody there, he committed eight more serious disciplinary offenses. Three of those actually involved homosexual acts. I assume that he was raping more boys there. Then he was moved to a maximum security reformatory in Ohio, where he was expected to remain until his 21st birthday, which was November of 1955. That's right, kids. He was still not 21. He did all of this before he was 21. He was just like a little kid. Yeah. But after some good behavior, he was released early in 1954 to live with his aunt and uncle in McMission, which is Virginia. Well, 1955 rolled around and Manson decided to get married. He married a hospital waitress named Rosalie Willis. Three months after, he and a now pregnant Rosalie arrived in Los Angeles in a stolen car from Ohio. And then he was arrested. So this time, he was charged with a federal crime of taking stolen property across state lines. After his psychiatric evaluation, he was just given five years probation. Which is pretty nice. That is pretty good. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So he failed to appear in Los Angeles on a similar charge out of Florida and then was arrested in 1956 in Indianapolis. So how many arrests does he have at this time? Like six or seven? Yeah, yeah. And it's all for stupid, petty stuff like stealing a car and driving across state lines. Like, bro, FTA. really you're not good at yeah. it. Like, stop. And, yeah, and failing to appear. Yeah. Well, his probation was revoked and he was sentenced to three years at Terminal Island in LA. While he was in prison, Rosalie gave birth to their son, Charles Manson Jr. Oh, how cute. That's so weird to me. Right. I always joke with Emerson and tell her she's going to name her baby after herself because she just thinks so highly of herself. <laughs> I mean, honestly, when you make your kid a junior, that's kind of what you're doing. <laughs> that's what I think. That's what I tell Emerson. Like, yeah, you really like yourself. You're going to name your own kid. You're going to name a kid after you. She's going to just spell it different. It's going to be a boy. <laughs> right, right. He'll be an O. Oh, God. Well, Rosalie lived with his mom for some time and they would all go and visit him. In March of 1957, Rosalie stopped visiting, and Manson's mother told him that she was living with another guy. Well, duh. Yeah. Just we- <laughs> just two weeks before his scheduled parole hearing, he tried to escape by stealing a car. He was given five <laughs> years probation, and his parole was denied. Shocking. Yeah. So in September of 1958, Manson received five years parole. That was also the same year that... Rosalie decided that she had had enough of being married to Charles and filed for divorce. In November of that same year, Manson was pimping out a 15-year-old girl and receiving support money from a girl with wealthy parents. In 1959, he was arrested and pleaded guilty to attempting to cash a forged U.S. Treasury check, which he claimed he had stolen from a mailbox. Mail fraud, friends. Don't do it. (laughs) He received a 10-year suspended sentence and probation, but that was only after a young prostitute named Leona made a tearful plea to the court that she and Manson were in love 
and they were going to be married if he was set free. She did end up marrying Manson, but mostly she did it so that she didn't have to testify against him. So, you know, Manson's got a track record. It's not a very good one. But you do what you can. You do, so, you do what you can. At this point, Manson decided he was taking Leona and another woman to New Mexico so that he could pimp them out. However, that ended up with him being held in question for violating the Man Act. I'm going to do a little history lesson for you. For those of you that don't know, the Man Act was the White Slave Traffic Act, which was passed in 1910. In its original form, the act made it a felony to engage in interstate or foreign commerce transport of, quote, any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose, end quote. It's Primary stated intent was to address prostitution, immorality, and human trafficking, particularly where trafficking was for the purposes of prostitution. It was one of several acts of protective legislation aimed at a moral reform during the progressive era. In its practice, its ambiguous language about immorality resulted resulted in it being used to criminalize even consensual sexual behavior between adults. It was amended in 1978 and again in 1986 to limit its application to transport for the purpose of prostitution or other illegal sexual acts. The Man Act was inspired by a red the Man Act was inspired by a widespread quote white slavery hysteria. Really? Cuz we were afraid of that. Hmm. A fear that young white women were being forced into prostitution at an alarming rate. Huh. Ultimately, it originated from cultural changes that occurred as the result of industrialization, immigration, urbanization, and increasing number of women workers. Huh. The myth scapegoated immigrants and sexually active women and fed Americans fears about the female independence, women's raged work, and female sexuality. This fear became a cultural narrative narrative of moral panic because it's perfectly fine for men to have sex with um, people but women shouldn't you shouldn't be doing that no it's bad sensationally depicted in newspapers and films the man act was passed in 1910 as a way to legislate morality by criminalizing transportation of women across state lines for immoral purposes but it was vaguely worded and created a witch hunting atmosphere that targeted not only traffickers but also voluntary prostitutes men and women having affairs and anyone who aided in providing transportation to someone for some perceived moral purpose The Mann Act was also used to close down all areas of suspected vice because of threats of white slavery. So, that's just a little history lesson for you right there. So, Manson was released, and he was pretty sure that this investigation was not closed, and he was correct. So, when he disappeared in violation of his probation, you guessed it, a warrant was issued, and an indictment was issued for the violation of the Mann Act in April of 1960. After the arrest of one of his women for prostitution, Manson was arrested in June of 1960 in Laredo, Texas. Because he had violated his probation in the check-cashing incident, he was ordered to serve his 10-year sentence. They actually dropped the Man Act. We had a whole law about white slavery hysteria, but it was okay to... Hypocrisy! Double Uh standards! Uh Uh-huh. 
Well, Manson spent a whole year trying to appeal the revocation of his probation. He was not successful. And in July of 1961, he was transferred from the L.A. County Jail to the United States Penitentiary at McNeil Island, Washington. While he was there, he met some people and did some things, like taking guitar lessons from the Barker <laughs> Carpus gang leader, Alvin Creepy Carpus. He also got the contact information of someone at Universal Studios in Hollywood by the name of Phil Kaufman. He got this information from another inmate. He also was imprisoned with Danny Trejo, and he participated in several hypnosis sessions, which I've always wanted to try. Yeah, right? You're like, a chicken. Yeah. Or, like, <laughs> hypnotize me so I remember my past life. Mm, yeah. That'd be cool. Maybe. Only if it's a good one, though. Because, like, I don't want to. Right. If I wasn't a princess, I want no part in it. <laughs> Or like a king. I would you were alive in 1910 and you couldn't pass the state lines for prostitution. You were That was my story. A prostitute. I was really a prostitute. <laughs> you were the reason Manson why they passed the Man Act. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, during this time, his mother actually moved to Washington state to be closer to him and she took a job as a wait a waitress, which surprises me because she really was pretty absent for his most of his childhood. Well, I mean, she was a child, too. She was. So She definitely I mean, was. And, like, where were her children when she was having a baby with a 24-year-old? Right. But it was 1930. It was. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was just like, oh, you're, we're marrying you off. Yeah. Well, they dropped the Mann Act charges, but the check-cashing charge was still a federal offense. In Manson's September 1961 annual review... It was noted in his file that he, quote, had a tremendous drive to call attention to himself, end quote, which I mean, you will yeah. see much of later in his <laughs> later trial. This observation was also noted in September of 1964. In 1963, Leona was granted a divorce and she alleged that she and Manson had also had a son together named Charles Luther. This is my son, Charles Jr. This is my son, Charles <laughs> Luther, Luther Jr. Like, <laughs> you must think very highly of yourself if you right? have two children named <laughs> after you. Charles. <laughs> like, oh. What do, you, what do you call them? Like, we're all having Christmas dinner. Junior the third. <laughs> oh god and chucky <laughs> yes junior and chucky yuck in june of 1966 manson was sent again to terminal island to prepare for an early release by the time he was released in march of 1967 he had spent more than half of his 32 years in prison and other institutions he told the authorities that prison had become his home and he requested to stay, which he probably should have. Right. And they're like, no, get out. Be free, little bird. <laughs> right. Go start so, a cult. Now we're getting into the part where Amanda decides he's, he's a little a little crazy. So less than a month after he was released in 1967, he decided to move to Berkeley, California from L.A., which could have been a probation violation. 
Instead, after calling the San Francisco Probation Department, he was transferred to the supervision of federal probation officer Roger Smith. Roger was also a criminology doctoral re- researcher. And wow, a probation Roger's officer. so fancy. I know, right? Get it, Roger. So, Roger had worked at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic until the spring of 1968. Manson and his family were there frequently. Roger and his co-founder, David Smith, had received funding from the National Institutes of Health and reportedly the CIA to study the effects of drugs such as LSD and meth on the counterculture movement in Haight-Ashbury at the time. I'm going to throw a little more history at you because that's what I'm about today. For those Apparently, of you that don't Jesus. know, I know. For those of you that don't know what the counterculture movement was, it was well, the 1960s was an anti-establishment cultural phenomenon that developed in the western world starting in the mid 1960s and continued on to the early 1970s. The effects of the movement have been ongoing to the present day. The aggregate movement gained momentum um, as the civil rights movement in the United States made significant progress such as the vote the voting rights acts of 1965, which is really sad that we had to have an actual act about voting rights when they're trying to take that away. Uh, But we're not getting that way. And with the intensification of the Vietnam War that same year, it became revolutionary to some. As the movement progressed, widespread social tensions, widespread social tensions also developed concerning other issues and tended to flow along generational lines regarding respect for the individual, human sexuality, women's rights, traditional modes of authority, rights of non-white people, and and the end of racial racial segregation, which is crazy that that was 1965. Experimentation of with psycho, psychoactive drugs and differing interpretations of the American dream. Many key movements related to these issues were born or advanced within the counterculture of the 1960s. Man, we're just learning all kinds of smart history things today. Right? I know. Well, you're welcome. And if you guys like... If you're familiar with the movie Forrest Gump, like that basically sums this whole thing up. Mm-hmm. You know, th- that really was what it was like in that time period where right. it was about love and peace and right, you know, choose people. love, not war. And, mm-hmm. you know, women were becoming empowered for really like the first like the time. First time. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were, they had their their power in the 20s but then like they really started to you know embrace their sexuality and mm-hmm. all of that and it was a huge pivotal time right. for the u.s and hey we're headed right back to before that time yay yes mm-hmm. <laughs> and nobody knows this because you guys wouldn't know this, but I had a 1960s slash 1970s themed birthday party because I was born in the wrong era and I should have been born between the 60s. No, no, no. I should have been born between like the 50s and the 80s because I should have gotten to experience all of those those eras. Uh, yeah. That the is 19- where I... The 1960s, I still... I mean, I can't believe that that people fought for these rights and now we're fighting to get those rights back. Like it doesn't, right. that doesn't that's not very cool. No, it's so, lame. sorry about that, but no. that's where I stand on that. Let us get off our soapbox. Yep. Go back to Roger. 
<laughs> so at Roger and David's clinic, the patients became subjects for their research. This included Manson and his ever-expanding group of mostly female followers. Manson got permission from Roger to move from Berkeley to the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco. He then started taking LSD, and he used it a lot while he lived there. David Smith, who had studied the effects of LSD and methamphetamine in rodents, said that the change in Manson's personality during this time was the most abrupt that they had ever seen in their professional careers. Manson also read the book Stranger in a Strange Land, which was by Robert Heinlein. He was so inspired by the up-and-coming free love philosophy in Haight-Ashbury during the Summer of Love, which, for those of you who don't know, the Summer of Love was a social phenomenon that occurred during the summer of 1967, when as many as 100,000 people, mostly young people, sporting hippie fashions of dress and behavior, converged in San Francisco's neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury. More broadly, the Summer of Love encompassed the hippie music, hallucinogenic drugs, anti-war, and free love scene throughout the West Coast of the U.S. And as far as New York City. Like I said, I totally should have been a hippie. Mm-hmm. Hippies, who are sometimes called flower children, were an eclectic group. Many were suspicious of the government, rejected consumerist values, and generally opposed the Vietnam War. A few were interested in politics. Others were concerned more with art, such as music, painting, poetry in particular, or spiritual and meditative practices. While the Summer of Love is often regarded as a significant cultural event, its actual significance to ordinary young people of the time, particularly in Britain, has been disputed. Manson began preaching his own philosophy based on a mixture of Stranger in a Strange Land, the Bible, Scientology, Dale Carnegie, the Beatles, and the Summer of Love. He quickly earned quite the following. So, Manson's first follower came from the UC Berkeley campus. She was librarian Mary Bruner. He talked her into letting him sleep at her house for just a few nights. That quickly became a permanent arrangement. Well, of course, he didn't have anywhere to live. Then after a while, he went. He met Lynette Squeaky from. She was a runaway teen. Manson convinced her to live with him and Bruner. Manson soon began to attract large crowds of people and some dedicated followers. He targeted people who were emotionally insecure and basic social outcasts, which all cult leaders target. What? Which reminds me, um, I'm starting a cult. So oh, if you guys want to like hang out and stuff, that'd be cool. And sleep on Corey's bunk beds. Yeah, sleep on my bunk beds. We'll do fun things. If you are emotionally insecure and a basic social outcast, please come see me. <laughs> <laughs> These people were easily manipulated. No, you're not. It's fine. If you have your own thoughts, you're not invited to Corey's cult. <laughs> In a book called Love Needs Care that David Smith wrote, he claimed that Manson attempted to reprogram these people's minds. No, that's not how cult leaders work. Into totally submitting to his will. 
into, into totally submitting to his will. He used LSD and unconventional sexual practices. Don't worry, we won't do any of that. That would turn his followers into empty vessels that would accept anything he poured. And we'll do that. One of Manson's followers, a man named Paul Watkins, had testified that Manson would encourage group LSD trips, but that he would take a significantly lower dosage to keep his wits about him. I mean, that's only smart. This you is where I could not have been a hippie. Yeah. It, I mean, if you're going to do LSD with your group, you got to take less so you can still know what they're doing. Someone's got to be the DD here. Exactly. Watkins stated that Manson's trip was actually to program all of them to submit, not the LSD. I mean, mm. I get it. In control freak. Like, I totally understand. <laughs> By the end of his stay in Height Ashbury, he had attracted 20 or more followers, all while he was under the supervision of Roger. Oh, uh, shit, I, Roger. I know, right? Uh, what a good federal probation officer you are. I know. So, I take back all my nice comments I said about you. So the core members of Manson's family were Charles Tex Watson. He was a, music, a musician and former actor. Bobby Busolet, who was a former former musician and porno actor. Hey, Mary Bruner, acting is acting. Right? Mary, <laughs> and in the 60s, porn was big. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. It was free love. Yeah, yeah. Mary Bruner, Susan Atkins, uh, Patricia Krenwinkle, and Leslie Van Houten. So next week, we will give you guys, like, more of an in-depth... Uh-huh. Description of who each of these people are. But under the supervision of his parole officer, the fancy pants Mr. Roger Smith, <laughs> Manson grew his family using drugs and prostitution. He had no intervention by the authorities. Of course not. Manson was arrested on July 31st, 1967 for attempting to prevent the arrest of one of his followers, a woman named Ruth Ann Morehouse. Instead of Manson being sent back to prison for violating his probation, the charge was reduced to a misdemeanor and he was given three more years of probation. Dude, the man was on probation for eternity. <laughs> like, right. He never got off of it. <laughs> no. And he avoided prosecution again in July of 1968 when he and the family were arrested while moving from San Francisco to LA with the permission of Roger Smith. His bus had crashed into a ditch. And Manson, Bruner, their newborn baby, probably named Charles, and others were found sleeping naked. He was arrested later on in the year on a drug charge and released a few days later. Probably on probation. <laughs> probably on probation. You're right. Back to his three children named Charles. <laughs> right? <clears throat> well, the Manson family developed into a doomsday cult when Manson became fixated on the idea of imminent apocalyptic race war between America's black population and the larger white population. As a white supremacist, Manson had told some of the family that the black people in America would rise up and kill all of the white people except for Manson and his family because they were not intelligent enough on their own and that they would need a white man to lead them and they would serve Manson as their master. According to Vincent Bugalosi, who was the deputy district attorney for the L.A. County Attorney's Office from 1964 to 1972, 
Manson adopted the term Helter Skelter in late 1968, which was taken from a song on the Beatles' White Album to refer to this upcoming war. Okay, kids. So that's where we're leaving Manson for this week. Uh, Tune in next week for another episode. It may be the conclusion. It may be not. Depending it's on how much information we have. It's a mystery. Uh, don't forget to check out the contest we're having on Instagram and Facebook. We want to know your coffee combos and where you order them. You will win a gift card. And if you guys are local to like the Brighton, Hudson, Keensburg area, I found this cute new coffee company. Oh. And it's like a traveling coffee company. And it's called Cattle Grounds. And it's you can find them on Facebook and they post like where they're going to be for the day. And oh, cute. oh my God, they have like the cutest little logo. They've got like the steam from the coffee coming up and there's a little cow. So oh, I am cute. definitely going to be checking them out. And I think that you guys should also go check them out because I mean, I love a good cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, I will get the name. Uh, my sister Annie's boyfriend owns a coffee company. What? Why are you holding yeah. this out on me? Holding out well, on this me. Holding his me website out. was down and now it's back up. So I will get the information and I will give that a shout out on the next episode. All right, crime fans. Until next week. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Make sure to send in your questions. If you haven't already, please subscribe so you can be notified every time we upload. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Again, we love doing listener shout outs. So make sure to leave a comment or a review for us. New episodes are released every Friday at 10.30 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Please follow us on Instagram at Colorado Crime or on Facebook at Colorado Crime Podcast or on YouTube at Colorado Crime for information on next week's episode as well as other true crime happenings. We hope that you have a beautiful day wherever you are. And as always, stay safe. Until next time, podcastians, have the weekend you deserve.